The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out that you are not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host today. It's time for our Thursday show with my dear friend Dr. Peter Hammond for his weekly appearance. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I'm with you, yes. Thank you. Excellent. We've got a really quite a lengthy title of this new series that you kicked us off uh, last week, so I'll just read the title. The Real Story of Stephen Mitford Goodson's Expose of Globalist General Jan Smuts, South Africa's Worst Prime Minister, and Why He Wasn't Assassinated. This is part two. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today? Well, it's an interesting observation by the author, Stephen Mitford Goodson, who was, of course, uh, a director of the Southern Reserve Bank. Um, he studied at the University of Stellenbosch, which um, Smuts also did. And he said he was puzzled by the fact that previous prime ministers who had studied Stellenbosch had buildings named after them, like D.F. Millon and H.F. Favut. But there's no building named after Smuts on the University of Stellenbosch campus. And uh, after he had done the research for this book, he understood why. Uh, in fact, at the end of the Anglo-Boer War, uh, and that's how far we got in the last uh, presentation last week, was um, many of the people who had fought with Smuts said, Yanni Smuts, ye het ons verai, you have betrayed us. And he was perceived as a Volksverleier, a betrayer or a traitor to the folk, to the people. Um, pretty widely amongst most Boers in the Orange Free State and Transvaal, they perceived him as a sellout, someone who is um, not just a hence-upper or a hands-upper, as personally surrendered to the enemy, um, as opposed to a bitter ender like President Stein who fought to the very end, uh, but as a fariah, a traitor, somebody who actually worked against interests. And the evidence came out pretty quickly because, so General Smuts was meant to have been the Attorney General for the Transvaal Republic or the Southern Republic under Paul Kruger, although Paul Kruger never trusted him, but he was perceived as having worked for the British interest, including precipitating the war uh, with that very foolish ultimatum that cast the Transvaal Republic as the aggressors, even though they were responding to uh, much provocation by the British, but the British government wanted a war where the Boers would fire the first shots. And so Jan Smuts, as Attorney General, unilaterally drawing up this ultimatum, saying that if you don't withdraw all your troops from our borders by this date, we will be at a state of war with you. And uh, 
uh, the secretary of the colonies, a chamberlain in Britain, was ecstatic and said this is the best news possible and uh, that we couldn't have played Kruger's cards better for him. And so basically, Jan Smuts did exactly what the British wanted him to do. And it, it was perceived at the end that that wasn't uh, from foolishness because he's a genius, um, but because uh, he was working for the other side. Now, Smuts also studied at Cambridge University where, as documented by Stephen Goodson, he was recruited into British intelligence, and there's lots of evidence for that. Well, after the Anglo-Boer War, remember, Jan Smuts is meant to have been one of the Boer commandos fighting the British forces who had now annexed the Orange River, uh, I should say the Orange Free State, into the Orange River Colony and the Transvaal into the Transvaal Colony. Uh, but then he was made an honorary general of the British Army and wore British Army uniform thereafter, which you can imagine would have confirmed the suspicions of some of his friends. He was also made a member of the um, Privy Council um, at the Imperial Conference in 1911. Uh, he introduced a Defence Force Act in 1912 to the South African Parliament, which enabled South African forces, despite the name Defence Force, to be deployed anywhere in the world in the service of the British Empire. So this was perceived as another great treasonous act to such an extent that another uh, veteran of the anglo war General Herzog, who was in fact um, a judge as well, Judge General uh, James Barry Herzog, uh, he um, left the head folk or the, uh, the people party, which Louis Boutter and Jan Smuts set up, and formed an opposition party, the National Party. And uh, five other party members left Het Folk, which Jan Smuts had set up, and uh, on out of protest that they believed that, in fact, um, Boutter and uh, Smuts were traitors. Well, now the First World War is going to break out soon. January 1914, there was a railway strike of workers who were unhappy with uh, the way the uh, government was being run. And Jan Smuts, who was Minister of Defence, Minister of um, Finance and Minister of the Interior, as Minister of the Interior, he called out the army and ordered the police to use force, and they shot 21 miners dead uh, who were striking, protesting against uh, government policy on the railways. And so you can imagine that didn't endear him to the local people either, the fact that he was willing to use such brute force to shut down a until then, peaceful strike. And then Smuts quickly rammed through Parliament an act of indemnity which protected him from prosecution. Um, in July 1914, World War One broke out after Gavrilo Princeps, who is identified in this book as a Jew and a member of the Black Hand, a Rothschild Front, an associate of Leon Trotsky, whose real name was Levi Davodovich Bronstein, and... Uh, this um, Gavrilo Princip, who started the First World War, the worst war in history to that date, um, by shooting the heir to the Austrian throne, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and his wife, Sophie, on their wedding anniversary, 10th wedding anniversary in Sarajevo, um, Bosnia, Herzegovina. And uh, at that point, um, South Africa threw in their lot with the British Empire uh, to make the South African army available. Um, for the British cause. And so the first thing they were told to do was invade German Southwest Africa, who, of course, had always been a friendly neighbor. And uh, the um, 
pretext given to them was they had these very powerful shortwave radio transmitters at Luderitz and Swakopmund, and you have to catch that or capture it. If you don't, it'll endanger the Royal Navy in the Atlantic, which seems hard to believe that anything could have endangered the Royal Navy, considering the Royal Navy was the biggest navy in the world and dwarfed it. the next two competitors, and the German um, Kriegsmarine couldn't come close uh, to threatening the Royal Navy. But anyway, that was the pretext. The real reason was that the largest uh, concentration of diamonds in the world was in Southwest Africa, and uh, or Deutsche Südwest Africa. So at this point, um, a lot of the South African Defence Force decided to resign or defect in in protest, and uh, the head of the South African Defence Force, General Christian Bayers, um, uh, decided to uh, resign in protest because he wouldn't lead the army against their previous friends and their peaceful neighbour on behalf of their previous enemies. And so uh, General Bayers uh, drowned, sadly, the 8th of December 2014, trying to cross the Vaal River um, while uh, being pursued by Union forces. And uh, General de Vett, who was one of the great heroes of the Anglo-Boer War, was arrested and imprisoned in Johannesburg Port on orders of Smuts, who was Minister of the Interior and Minister of Defence. Uh, but uh, Commandant Yopi Fari was shot uh, after being sentenced to death by military tribunal because he left without actually formally uh, resigning, from the, and so he was dealt with as a traitor um, instead of just a protester. And there's still a lot of resentment to this day in South Africa that Smuts would have been so brutal, not even um, imprisoning his previous um, fellow soldier, uh, Yopi Fari, but having him shot. So there was, a, and the most outrageous war was General Delaray, who was one of the greatest of the Anglo-Boer War heroes on the Boer side, was shot by the police at a roadblock, apparently by accident, who even though he was one of the most famous people in the country, Delaray was mistaken for a bank robber, said the police. That's the official story. Nobody believed it then, nobody believes it now in South Africa, but uh, Jan Smuts was perceived as the traitor who was waging war against even his own people. Well, the First World War breaks out and South Africa is requested to secure Southwest Africa, Deutsche Südwest Africa. And uh, for this, Smuts amassed a force of 67,000 soldiers, um, and uh, they invaded German Southwest Africa, what today is Namibia, opposed by a very small force. The Germans only had 3,000 protection force, Schutztruppe, um, commanded by Colonel Joachim von Hedebrecht, and uh, he fought till his death, the 12th of November, uh, did it during a courageous rearguard action, but um, the South African forces were just so overwhelmingly large that the small German colonial force at Southwest Africa, who could not be resupplied, of course, because the Royal Navy con commanded the seas. So um, each of these uh, towns fell, Luderitz, uh, Swakopmund, where the uh, powerful shortwave transmitters were, were captured. But uh, the real excitement came when they got all the diamond fields of the Skelton Coast. And these diamond fields... Um, were responsible at that time for 21% of the world's production of diamonds. And there was also platinum, which would become more valuable later. At this point, um, the uh, Oppenheimers, who controlled the beers, they were Rothschild fronts in South Africa, gave the 
Kimberley uh, Regiment a special Freedom of the City march. Uh, and there was Harry Oppenheimer, who was head of De Beers, who at that point was mayor of Kimberley, which is where the diamonds were in South Africa, and uh, uh, gave them the Freedom of the City. And in his speech, um, congratulate them on now enabling De Beers to control 80% of all the diamonds in the world. So apparently the tr transmitters in Luderitz and Swakopmund were not the main reason they were sent to invade neighboring Southwest Africa, but to consolidate the diamonds. And that was in the speech by the mayor of Kimberley, uh, very clearly they were congratulated for having uh, created a diamond monopoly for De Beers, which was now worldwide. So at this point, uh, General Smuts was appointed a lieutenant general, and uh, because he had not been involved in any of the combat, um, he was given a chance to serve the British then in Tanganyika, German East Africa, which was under the force of uh, uh, General Paul Emil van Lettler-Forbeck. And General van Lettler-Forbeck only had a small force of um, no more than 600 Germans and 6,000 local Askari, but... Uh, General Smuts brought an army of 93,000 forces who were outwitted by, by Van Lettler-Forbeck at every point. Now, this was a bit embarrassing because Smuts only had experience in guerrilla warfare, um, but he didn't seem to be very good at counter-guerrilla warfare because Van Lettler-Forbeck, although outnumbered, managed to keep his field artillery and forces uh, endlessly outmaneuvering the South African forces to such an extent that at the end of the war, the end of the First World War, Van Lettler-Forbeck's force was still undefeated. In fact, they were at that stage in northern Rhodesia, what today is Zambia. They had crossed over to Portuguese Mozambique. They had um, managed to do all sorts of things during the war, and they had outwitted um, even Smuts. So Smuts, who was meant to be an experienced soldier in guerrilla warfare, had to bow to Van Lettler-Forbeck. They sent a messenger over on motorbike uh, with a, a white flag to tell the German general that um, the German imperial government has um, uh, signed the armistice and the Kaiser's abdicated and uh, Van Lettler-Forbeck responded, we know that. In fact, they'd captured a British um, a signalman who had those details with him on the road and so they knew about that. And uh, so uh, Smuts's message was that you need to lay down your arms and surrender. So Van Lettler-Forbeck said, um, you never beat us in battle. If you want a rematch, come on and try and get them. So Smuts had to accept, no, fair enough, you've you've uh, not been defeated. You can keep your weapons. So they kept their flags, their banners, their swords, pistols, and rifles, and they marched into the capital uh, under full arms because they were an undefeated enemy. And they were wined and dined in uh, Dar es Salaam, uh, the, uh, the port city. And when they embarked back to Germany, they went back with all their banners, flags, swords, um, and in honor. And Van Lettler-Forbeck's colonial forces from uh, East Africa actually had a victory parade through the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, undefeated. And uh, so Smuts did not cover himself in glory in the First World War, but he was made part of the Imperial War Cabinet at the invitation of Prime Minister Lloyd George, and he became member of the Privy Council in England. He received a whirlwind of applause throughout Britain, even though he hadn't won a battle or done anything particularly uh, openly, but of course he had done a lot of work behind the scenes. So Smuts uh, had speeches all over Great Britain where he was honoured and received with great applause 
as obviously a faithful servant to the British Empire. Well, in May 1917, Smuts was offered command of the British forces fighting the Turks in the Middle East. And uh, Louis Boutier, as then Prime Minister, advised him to turn this offer down, which he did, because, in fact, he would be unlikely to be able to outwit the Turks, and it would not look good on his military resume. Well, on the 18th of May 1917, at a banquet held in Smuts' honour in the Royal Gallery of the House of Lords, General Smuts said the British Empire denoted a single entity consisting of many nations, states, and colonies and protectorates, and should in future be designated as the British Commonwealth of Nations. And this term eventually passed into common use. And so, in some ways, Smuts is credited with being the father of the Commonwealth. And he actually laid down many of the ideas. So he really was a genius and he's a thinker. In fact, there are people who say that General Smuts did Winston Churchill's thinking for him and wrote many of his speeches. So he was a real genius. Also, July 1917, 22 German Gotha airplanes bombed uh, London, causing quite a public outcry. Um, this was in retaliation for bombing that had been done in Germany, but nevertheless, uh, there was a lot of outcry. Something must be done. And so Smuts was asked to compile a response to this, and he completed a scheme within eight days of a centralized command structure for the defense of London and uh, later, the British cabinet described it as the most important paper in the history of the creation of the Royal Air Force. So Smuts is actually um, not only credited with having gotten South Africa involved in three ruinous wars, but having uh, actually been the father of three air forces, including uh, the Royal Flying Corps um, and the Royal Naval Air Service, which joined and the South African Air Force later. But uh, at this point, uh, he... he um, also became chairman of the War Priorities Committee. He settled priority claims about departments concerning the war and what manpower resources could be allocated to them. During his time in England in the First World War, Smuts gave a lot of patriotic speeches, one of which was a great triumph. There was a coal miners' strike coming at Tony, Tony Paddy in southeastern Wales, and this threatened to cripple Britain's... Lloyd George... Um, requested Smuts to go and he tipped him off that the Welsh were great singers. So before addressing the tens of thousands of angry strikers on 29th of October 1917, General Smuts asked them, please sing the Welsh national anthem, Land of My Fathers. And in this way, he was able to defuse a very volatile situation and the strike was called off. So when it came to diplomacy, Smuts could be quite um, astute. One of the most significant things he did uh, during the First World War was he authored the Balfour Declaration. Um, although Lord Elf, Arthur Balfour is normally the one accredited with it, it's called the Balfour Declaration, it's Smuts actually drafted the document. And uh, Smuts was, of course, a close friend with um, the founder of, of Israel um, and uh, Chaim, uh, I'm just failing his surname, the head of the, the founder of, of Israel, Chaim Weissman. Is it Wiseman? Uh, so he's the one who drafted the wording of the Balfour Declaration that Britain would grant um, the Zionists the state of Israel, which of course at that stage was not under British control. It wasn't British to give, it was under the Ottoman Turkish Empire. But in exchange for the uh, Jews in America who controlled the mass media, getting America to abandon its long-term neutrality and to come to war on Britain and France's side, the Prit Pro Quo 
was that the British Empire would pledge him the land of Palestine, which then was under Turkish control, so that they could actually set up their own state, um, which took the Rothschild's badge of the six-pointed star, the hexagram. So Smuts took part in diplomatic missions um, in Geneva uh, to try and meet with the Austrian ambassador, and he tried to see if he could um, resolve a separate peace with the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, before one was reached with Germany. This was a failure. But in April 1919, he was a key part of the Versailles Peace Conference. He met the revolutionary leader of Hungary, Bela Kun, whose real name was Aaron Cohen. And Bela Kun, of course, murdered hundreds of thousands of people in Hungary during the communist revolution in Hungary, which was overthrown, but it certainly caused a lot of death and destruction. And uh, for some reason, Smuts met with Bela Kun or Aaron Cohen in Budapest at the railway station with a view to him providing better communication with Moscow and trying to persuade the Russians to join in with the um, peace conference in, in Versailles and also to stop hostilities between Hungary and Romania, even though this did fail. But um, interestingly, at the end of the war, King George V privately asked uh, General Smuts to stay on in Britain and become the Prime Minister after Lloyd George. So even though he is South African, the British trusted him enough to want him to be the Prime Minister of Great Britain. In fact, that was Winston Churchill's design in the Second World War II. He had the arrangement that in the event of him being um, either killed or removed one way or the other in the Second World War, that Jan Smuts would take his position as Prime Minister of Great Britain. He already was on the war cabinet, but I'm jumping ahead. So although the Germans had signed the armistice agreement, the ceasefire agreement on 11th of November 1918, based on the 14 points of Woodrow Wilson, which was no war reparations, no um, taking away of territory, no assigning of, of guilt, uh, trying to solve things on a fair and equitable basis. Uh, those 14 points were very quickly ignored and forgotten at Versailles, and the whole conference was poisoned with ignorance, hatred, and lots of vengeance. As General Smuts wrote later, everything we have done here at Versailles is far worse than the Congress of Vienna. At least the statesmen of 1815 knew what was going on. Our statesmen have no idea. And later when Smuts was asked if he would write his memoirs, he said he could not because it would ruin the established narrative. He knew too much, which went against the standard accepted view of history, and therefore uh, he couldn't consider writing his memoirs, interestingly enough. But he did say that the Versailles Treaty was not a treaty at all. It was um, a disaster. It guarantees another world war, and it was poisoned by British perfidy and French hatred and ignorance. So those are some of the quotes. Well, Stephen Goodson also documents that the Versailles Treaty was completely dominated by agents of Zionism. There were actually 117 Jews present at the Versailles Treaty, and that included um, the, the uh, um, members of the Rothschilds and others who were the actual advisors of Lloyd George, of Prime Minister of Britain, and George Clements, who was the uh, leader of France, and they, they were actual Rothschilds. Georges Mandel, who was also a Rothschild, um, was Clemenceau's advisor, um, and Philip Sassoon, whose mother was a Rothschild, was Lloyd George's advisor. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was also assisted by Jewish people Bernard Baruch and Louis Brandeis. The Italian delegate um, himself was Jewish, 
His interpreter, Etienne Mantox, and military advisor, Mr. Kish, were also Jews. And that when it was later brought out uh, in Germany after the Weimar Republic's disaster, that they were stabbed in the back at Versailles by Jews, that, in fact, historically is true. The Versailles Treaty was dominated by Jewish people who had a Zionist agenda. And uh, Smuts attended Versailles, and uh, he actually wrote a memorandum, The League of Nations, A Practical Suggestion, and is credited with being the founder of the covenant of the League of Nations, because Smuts's League of Nations practical suggestion became the basis for the establishment of the League of Nations. And later, uh, Smuts was also involved in the launch of the United Nations during and after the Second World War II. Well, uh, interestingly, Smuts recognized that the financial burdens which France was proposing to place in Germany would be incapable of being affected and would sow the seeds of future conflicts. Um, he was ignored. He also encouraged John Maynard Keynes, who was attending and who had calculated the economic cost of the peace, to write a book. And Keynes produced the economic consequence of the peace, which showed that this would create a worldwide global recession. It would put Germany into deep depression, massive inflation, and that it would inevitably make another war, which would cost billions more, uh, inevitable. So Smuts did protest against the so-called punishment clauses, but he also proposed one of the most draconian financial burdens on Germany of all, and that is that the payments of all British military pensions um, would be um, included in the war reparations of Germany, that Germany's war reparations would include having to pay for all war pensions and medical uh, costs uh, for the victors, um, France and Britain and so on, and to put that financial burden on Germany, which would go into the multiplied billions, which it did. Well, the British forced the Germans to sign this declaration, including war guilt and economic uh, reparations, at the point of the sword, because the Royal Navy continued to starve the German civilian population submission with the hunger blockade. So Smuts initially refused to sign the Versailles Treaty, saying, you know, it was a travesty of justice uh, and the poisonous spirit of vengeance was throughout it. But Lloyd George persuaded him to sign and rather to protest afterwards. Um, but Smuts uh, didn't want to, he thought it would be uh, a travesty of justice to sign this. But Lloyd George then basically bribed him that we won't grant you Southwest Africa as a Class C mandate unless you sign this agreement. And South Africa, of course, had conquered South West Africa, so it was South Africa's by right of conquest. But to get the League of Nations Versailles Treaty uh, to appoint it to South Africa officially was considered by Smuts to be politically advantageous. Well, in 1921, Smuts attended the Imperial Conference in London and was requested to please and facilitate negotiations with the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, uh, in Ireland. There'd been a civil war during the war. The Irish Republican Army had risen up in Easter Rebellion 1916. And now the British government didn't want to meet with uh, the Irish rebels, and Irish rebels didn't want to meet with any British person either. But the Irish did have a great respect for the Boers. So using Smuts's uh, credentials as a Boer commander who had fought the British Empire, uh, they persuaded the Valera and Erskine Childers uh, to cease hostilities to uh, attend the conference to accept dominion status and smuts facilitate this. 
So General Smuts was um, the secret weapon of the British Empire in many ways because he wasn't perceived as British, even though he was fully dedicated to their cause and their agenda. Well, on the advice of General Smuts, um, King George V gave a very conciliatory speech at the opening of Parliament in Belfast, 1921. And uh, this helped bring about the Irish Free State being proclaimed through the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921. And Ireland was at first a dominion of the British Empire, independent, but um, it was uh, uh, later to become a full republic. But basically, Smuts was a key player in bringing about the Irish independence. Well, when Prime Minister Louis Boutter died on 27th August 1919, General Smuts, as his deputy, became Prime Minister. So he wasn't elected to being Prime Minister, but he was appointed because he was in the right position at the right time when the Prime Minister died. Now, uh, Louis Boutter had been in poor health, and because the Spanish influenza at the end of the First World War, which was to a large extent caused by the vaccination program, um, that killed our first Prime Minister, Louis Boutin. So Jan Smuts becomes Prime Minister of South Africa. And almost immediately, one of the most disastrous things he ever did was he created a central bank known as the South African Reserve Bank, which was completely controlled by the Rothschilds. And so this came about um, through uh, Smuts's work. And Smuts based his uh, South African Banking and Currency Act um, on the United States Act, which Congress was misled into approving in 1913, which brought into being the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank, which is not American, which isn't federal, which has no reserves and isn't a bank, but isn't 58% owned by the Rothschilds. So Stephen Midford Goodson describes as a treacherous piece of legislation, which would enable the bank to create money out of nothing to be transferred to private banks in perpetuity and a form of debt slavery to ensure that the most productive sector of the population in South Africa would dwindle from 25% whites at that time to the present day 8%. And usury has been one of the principal causes of impoverishment of the nuclear family, decline in birth rate, collapse in civilization, forcing mothers to go out of the home to, for a second job to work to pay the taxes uh, for the government. And... Uh, all of this was written in Oswald Spengler's book, The Decline of the West, how it was the central reserve banks and the federal income tax that led to um, so much tax burden that families would now be required to take the mother, who used to be the stay-at-home mother, full-time mother raising the children, to now work, which of course brought the birth rate down dramatically. And so this was a demographic uh, disaster, and it was designed to be a demographic disaster. Well, Smuts had been appointed Minister of Finance in 1912, even though he had never shown any financial ability, had no experience in business, and his personal finances and accounts were haphazard and usually neglected. He was useless at detail in economics. But he still, in 1914, piloted through the Income Tax Act to South Africa, which modeled on the American uh, Income Tax Act, the so-called 16th Amendment, uh, when Smuts's bill was first introduced into the House of Assembly in South Africa, it was responded to with much laughter. The, literally, the members of Parliament were laughing at him for this idea of uh, national income tax. He initially set the tax threshold at £1,000, which was the annual salary of a high-earning executive. But that threshold was soon lowered, and then the annual review was forgotten, 
and income tax went all the way down and started to destroy the hardworking middle class. And uh, the uh, future Minister of Finance, Pete Bukers, uh, said that uh, Smuts's position in Ministry of Finance was, in hindsight, a mistake, which was, uh, putting it mildly, other opponents of Smuts at the time called him an indifferent and casual administrator. And of course, you shouldn't be casual when it comes to finances of a country. So the Banking and Currency Act of 1920 uh, stabilized South Africa's gold reserves and minting and printing of South Africa's own coin and bank notes by basically putting it under the control of our Oppenheimers, which are like the Rothschilds of South Africa. Well, Smuts asked his friend, Sir Henry Strakosch, who is a retired mining magnate living in England, to provide guidance. Now, Strakosch was a Jew from Moravia, and uh, like Ernst Oppenheimer and Benjamin Disraeli, he converted to an Anglican Episcopalian form of Christianity. Um, so he officially renounced Judaism and became a Christian, but that was apparently just for strategic ends, so like the, uh, as we know, the Sabbatans do. Uh, so Sir Henry Strakosch later produced the pamphlet, The Southern Currency and Exchange Program, and this was used as a basis for legislation in South Africa. The Labour Party in South Africa strongly opposed this attempt to bring in the Reserve Act and the Reserve Bank South Africa. And uh, one of the Labour Party members says, the banks have been a factor in the enslavement of workers. They merely exist to loan great enterprises at exorbitant interest. They must be inimical to the good of the people as a whole. It is time ministers of finance all over the world consider the establishment of state banks. We would be absolute fools to allow our wealth to get in the hands of private banks instead of having a state bank of our own. Nevertheless, the bill was passed by 69 votes to 22. And Strakoff immediately left after the success in South Africa to India to help them establish the Reserve Bank of India. Well, at this time in 1930s, Winston Churchill was out of office and often in sanatoriums to recover from his alcoholic binges. And through his gambling debts, he ran to financial difficulties and uh, his stock exchange investments had failed. Churchill was bankrupt and about to lose his great treasured home at Chartwell in Kent. At this point, Strakosch stepped into breach and paid all of Churchill's debts, salvaged Churchill and organized the focus group to direct Churchill's political speeches and policies. And from this point, Winston Churchill, mid-1930s, became a paid agent of Strakosch and the bankers. And that's when Winston Churchill went from describing Bolshevism as the plague bacillus, as the greatest plague since the um, bubonic plague and the greatest threat to Western civilization, to national socialism in Germany was the greatest threat. And the problem wasn't the Soviet Union, but Germany. And so Churchill plainly was having a script written by others who had paid his debts, gambling debts, enabled his very extravagant lifestyle of living off endless cigars and liquor. So Strakosch fed Churchill with exaggerated spurious statistics regarding German rearmament, which turned out later to be very fabricated and exaggerated, but helped to promote a war psychosis, which the British media happily uh, published in order to prepare the ground that the British people were prepared to go to war with Germany, even though there was a lot of opposition to a new, new war with Germany amongst the British population. Winston Churchill later 
imprisoned over 5,000 people, uh, including members of parliament, members of the House of Lords, including members of the royal family, including uh, admirals and generals, uh, for um, just not being enthusiastic enough for the war. So without charge, there were thousands of people, including members of parliament, detained under Churchill's uh, war powers. And uh, plainly, not everyone in Britain agreed uh, with Churchill's idea of fighting on no matter what, uh, without regard to the cost or the benefits or anything like that. Interestingly, when Strakos died in 1943, in his will, he expunged Churchill's debt of £18,000 that was forgiven to him and left a further £20,000 to Churchill, pretty good. His debts of 18000 were forgiven and he has given another grant of £20,000 and £10,000 was left to Smuts in Strakos's will. So the only two people Strakos left any personal bequest to was Churchill and Smuts. And the words in his will was, as a token of friendship and gratitude, reposing me in connection with the several tasks he has entrusted to me. So plainly, these are major bequests and interesting that this devious um, servant of the Rothschild bankers, Strakos, um, would have remembered Smuts and Churchill in that way. In many ways, Smuts and Churchill were very kindred spirits and both very much servants of the globalists. Well, in 1921, there was an economic downturn, as predicted from the Versailles Treaty. You can't destroy the economy of Germany without it having ripple effects. And so the mine owners, the Southampton Chamber of Mines, decided to cut costs by employing more black miners at £3 a month instead of white miners who have been paid £30 a month. And so the result was uh, a general strike, and uh, that included the South African Communist Party mobilizing them under Workers of the World Unite for a White South Africa, which is kind of ironic considering where they went later and where they are now. But um, 20,000 miners start to strike, and Smuts, who was owned by the mining magnates, um, intervened to mobilize the army, the air force, and uh, the police to crush the protesters. He mobilized South African Air Force, artillery, machine guns, tanks. 5,000 people were arrested, 1,400 strikers were prosecuted, 864 were convicted of charges of high treason, hundreds were sentenced to long terms of imprisonment, 18 were condemned to death, four were hanged. So pretty harsh crackdown. Again, many whites in South Africa have not forgotten or forgiven what Smuts did during that time of, of white minor protests and literally had the Air Force bombing them and uh, the Army and Artillery Force machine gunning uh, protesters on the streets. Uh, he also mobilized the Air Force to bomb the Nama tribe um, in um, along the Orange River because they didn't want to pay a dog tax of a pound or two a year, something like that, to pay per dog they had as a tax. So the Air Force came along with top with camels and dropped bombs on the people um, for not paying their taxes. So Smuts got a reputation for high hand, merciless treatment of strikers, made him very unpopular. And so at the first election opportunity, um, uh, people were going to get rid of him. So he then formed the South African Party. He merged with the Unionist Party. So Hitfolk and the Unionist Party formed now the South African Party, or the SAPs, the SAP. And at the very next elections, General James Barry Herzog's National Party obtained a majority and managed to form a government with the Labour Party. So Smuts then became the opposition. He lost the next five elections against um, James Barry Herzog's National Party. 
and uh, James Barry Herzog was only removed by a coup d'etat by Smuts in 1939 when Herzog refused to declare war on Germany and Smuts, without an election, without a referendum, just removed the popular elected prime minister and became prime minister himself and minister of defense and minister of justice, foreign affairs, the whole lot, all embodied himself um, in 1939 and threw South Africa's full weight behind the British in the Second World War. One of his first acts was to order all the gold in South Africa shipped to Simonstown secretly and loaded at night on an American air, uh, battleship, the USS Quincy, which went to New York. And once the gold was received, it unleashed the land lease for Britain and for the Soviet Union. So South Africa's gold, without being discussed in Parliament, without being discussed in the South African cabinet, without even being reported in the South African press, South Africa's gold paid for land lease, which saved the Soviet Union and enabled Britain to stay in the war for a lot longer than they would have been otherwise. Interesting, and why did Smuts do it? Not because the people of South Africa did it, but because Winston Churchill requested it. So here we had a Prime Minister who was more beholden to Britain than to the people he's meant to represent. Well, in 1925, Smuts played a leading role in the Locarno Pact, the Locarno Treaty, signed in London 1925, pacts between Germany, Belgium, Czechoslovakia, France and Poland, and Italy, um, and guaranteeing the frontier on the Rhine and the Belgian-French treaty. And uh, uh, this Smuts uh, considered one of his most important works. And he now published a book entitled An Inquiry into Whole. And the title it was published under was Holism and Evolution. And his theory was the, the society as a whole is more important than the individual. And we are all part of the whole and that what we need is South Africa needs to be part of, just like all the four colonies in South Africa to be part of a union of South Africa, so South Africa has to be part of the British Commonwealth of Nations, and that's uh, what we actually need to work for is global government, a new world order. And so he believed the rights of the individual must be suppressed for the good of the whole community and for the good of the nation, for the good of the universe, for the good of the uh, global agenda. And... Uh, he was, of course, a globalist throughout his life. Well, when General Herzog attended the Imperial Conference in 1926, he declared his intention of seeking independence for South Africa. And so Smuts opposed this and declared at the City Hall in Johannesburg, everybody knows that such a declaration would mean the disintegration of our, em of our empire, our empire. <laughs> so... Smuts was plainly now more concerned for the empire than for South Africa, even though Herzog was well supported by South African people who did want independence. And Smuts declared, we are satisfied with the empire, we are satisfied with our position within the empire. And although Smuts was the leader of the opposition in parliament, um, he was now a sideline from most national and international events because he was ousted in his own country and now he is just the leader of the opposition. So he engaged in a lot of activity of botany and hiking and um, identifying different types of grasses, which was one of his specialities um, for cattle feeding and so on. Well, he still traveled abroad, especially to England, and he made lots of speeches. And South Africans would sarcastically remark that whenever he went to England, he was going home. And he started to refer to New World Order quite often. That was in his terminology before Versailles, during Versailles, during the League of Nations. And in 1930, Smuts wrote the book Africa and Some World Problems. He became a fellow of the Royal Society 
and the first president of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, who wasn't from Britain. Uh, his address was the scientific world picture today, and he was advancing Darwinian evolutionary ideas. He was very much a Darwinian. He studied at uh, Cambridge University uh, at about the same time, apparently, or same place that Darwin had studied, and was very proud of the connection with Darwin that they studied in the same college. And uh, later on, he became rector of St. Andrews, Scotland's oldest university, and chancellor of Cambridge University. At about this time, the Great Depression was launched, engineered by Jewish-owned, Jewish-controlled U.S. Federal Reserve Bank, which is now no longer a theory that's been proven. Uh, it's no longer a secret, the fact that the Reserve Bank actually uh, triggered the Great Depression. And uh, it was obviously an engineered depression. And uh, the Southern Reserve Bank lost half its capital and its, all its reserves, teetered on the brink of bankruptcy. And uh, as a result, um, although Smuts was out of politics and uh, General Herzog was the promise to the country, South Africa did plunge into an economic crisis and it started to be understood that the Southern Reserve Bank had played a key role in this. However, one part of the world managed to come out of the uh, depression very spectacularly. And here, Stephen Mitford Goodson documents in a run-up to World War II, on the 30th of January 1933, the National Socialists came to power in Germany. And instead of Smuts appraising himself of the reality of what was going on, he confined himself to making contemptuous and juvenile remarks, such as National Socialism was a dark force that threatened freedom and it was a colossal mistake from an economic point of view. But as Stephen Goodson points out, the fact is, in Germany, the gross domestic product was growing at 10% per annum in the early 1930s, and there was zero unemployment, and they had completely um, resolved so many economic problems that one should look carefully and see what they do differently. But... Uh, in fact, Smuts's Minister of Defence, Oswald Perrow, uh, went to Germany on a number of visits uh, in the 1930s and was received well and saw firsthand and therefore appraised Smuts of the dramatic transformation of Germany economically and the building of autobahns and public buildings and works and destroying um, of all the um, unemployment and how uh, Economic situation was being advanced by special grants being given to people when they married so that they could build, purchase their own home. And then for each child born, 25% uh, of their debt would be uh, written off. So a person would get 1,000 marks when they got married, enough to buy a home. And then for every child born, 250 marks would be forgiven. Therefore, if you had four children, your home would be debt-free and so on. And uh, they saw that what was going on in Germany was an economic miracle, um, to use the term of that stuff, and uh, that they were beating the depression while the rest of the world, including South Africa, was still uh, very much um, in much depression. But according to Smuts, he just kept coming out with more and more um, propaganda-type statements saying that National Socialism was the darkest page of human history, completely ignoring the real horrors and grotesque crimes and atrocities taking place at that very time under the Bolsheviks in the Soviet Empire. The Soviet Union was murdering people by the millions and starving the population under the decolonization uh, farm land reform policies to such an extent that millions were dying in the Soviet Union. And yet Smuts could make such ignorant comments as 
that National Socialism was the greatest threat to freedom and the greatest, darkest page in human history, completely ignoring communism in the Soviet Union. So Smuts uh, also described the Union, the Anschluss between Austria and Germany, as a display of brute force, the rape of Austria, even though, as Stephen Goodson points out, not a single life was lost in the Anschluss, not a shot was fired, and the plebiscite referendum on the 10th of April 1938, 99% of the voters in Austria wanted unification with Germany under the rule of Adolf Hitler, who obviously, it should be remembered, was an Austrian. So plainly, Smuts had a globalist agenda and was very hostile to a nationalist uh, state bank, which was not run by the Rothschilds. Well, on March 1933, the headlines of the Daily Express was Judea declares war in Germany, Jews of all the world unite in action to boycott German products and wage economic war in Germany. And so, uh, despite all that, Smuts um, continued to uh, speak at Zionist events and to espouse Zionist um, propaganda. So, Smuts encouraged Jewish immigration to South Africa against the um, advice and support of the Southern Prime Minister at the time, James Barry Herzog. And uh, Stephen Goodson quotes here that Smuts had a personal liking for Jews. He shared with the Jews their tremendous arrogance. In a speech given at a Zionist banquet in Johannesburg, 1939, Smuts spoke about his special love for Jewry, quote-unquote, and of the need for rebuilding a Jewish national home in Palestine, saying it's the most romantic cause in the world today, which uh, he believed would bring about peace to the Middle East, which doesn't seem to have been fulfilled. So, uh, in 1937, Prime Minister James Barry Herzog introduced a bill to curtail Jewish immigration to South Africa and um, also to regulate how people can change their surnames. To, and this was proposed by D.F. Milan, who later became Prime Minister of South Africa. And uh, D.F. Milan accused Jan Smuts of turning South Africa into a Jewish imperialist war machine. And he would refer to Smuts as Smutskovich. And that was quite common in the press at that time. So in the run-up to the Second World War, it was quite clear, uh, Jan Smuts was running um, an operation which was more uh, in the service of the banks and the miners than of the people, and more guided by London and the Imperial Conference than uh, by the needs of his people in South Africa. There's also evidence brought out by Stephen Goodson that uh, Smuts was also recruited um, into some service for the CIA, and that he set up a, a false flag operation called the Osava Brandwach, uh, or the Oxwell um, Watch, and uh, he set this up to attract, the, because he was Minister of the Interior, therefore to attract people who were opposed to the government into this cultural organization, the Osava Brandwach was set up at the 150th anniversary of the um, Great Trek. But it was a front in order to um, basically uh, spy on any of the um, opponents of his agenda. And uh, there's more about that coming. But I think this is a good place to end our second part of this series. There's much more coming. It's absolutely extraordinary what John, what Jan Smuts uh, achieved for the globalist agenda. And so much of the world that we are in today and the problems we're in today are some of the legacy of this man who plainly served and advanced the globalist agenda very faithfully. Thank you, Back Peter. To you, Andrew.
Yeah, it's a fascinating story. I've been sitting here uh, enjoying your presentation and making the usual notes for the show post for people. So if they want to have a quick look uh, before they listen, I'm one of the people who prefers to listen to something without looking at any description, just the title, because I don't want to be... Um, you know get any idea of what's going to be spoken about but uh, found it fascinating as always and before we go can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you yes my personal email is peter at frontline f-r-o-n-t-l-i-n-e peter at frontline.org.za and uh, our website is www.frontlinemissionsa.org frontline mission sa short for south africa FrontlineMissionSA.org. Yes, and you're also on um, uh, Facebook, aren't you? you? You get quite a lot of traffic yes, there, is it? very much. Excellent. In okay. fact, at the moment, I've just launched a salvo against the chemo industry oncology departments as the, giving the personal testimony of what we suffered uh, fighting cancer in our family and um, been getting a lot of traffic on that. I just think it's outrageous what big farmers are doing to destroy our health, create customers rather than improve the health of their patients yes but that's another story agree. for another day yeah um yeah it, it was um obviously very difficult time and it's one of those things that the problem that you you'll be aware of now um is that when you go down the allopathic route it's very difficult to then switch to another route that um, you know, a lot of damage is done by going down that chemotherapy route, as you're familiar with now. Oh, but terrible health consequences. But, you know, we can't know everything. Do you know what I mean? And and this is the um, this is the way that things work. And, and of course, you're not given options. And we've even got a situation um, where I know of uh, someone who went down the homeopathic route and the doctor that they see can't even put that they treat cancer you have to just go there and then they'll tell you because they wouldn't allow that either because they want to funnel everybody into the allopathic route and then of course you had all these um, natural health doctors around america in recent years suddenly popping up dead left right and center and it just uh, seems to be a real big uh, war against homeopathic medicine which you know I've taken these remedies for different things that have actually a lot of them haven't worked. But for me, the um, I got to the black elderberry for when I get congestion, and that always seems to work for me. If I get a suspicion of a cold, sore throat, what have you, take them, get it early enough, and then it goes away. So consequently, I've only had that sort of illness. I think, you know, had it recently, uh, it developed into a cold, and that that's pretty much the first time I can recall after I started taking them. So there's a lot to be said for homeopathic medicine in a variety of forms, uh, but also don't give up on... I mean, I'll give you an example. I tried colloidal silver once many years ago oh, yes. when I was had a cold and stuff. did absolutely nothing for me. But I, I could have taken it wrong. I could have, you know, what have you. But I, I, I believe that certain things may work for some people, but not for others. It's just try to find that one that works for you. Peter, any comments on that before we go? Yes. Um, obviously, the main things we need for good health is clean, uh, uh, fresh air, clean water, healthy food, regular exercise and a positive attitude. I mean, those are, that's health care. Um, what Big Pharma is offering us is sick care. 
absolutely right. So uh, we'll sign off now. I want to thank Peter so much for joining us today for his presentation of the real story of Stephen Mitford Goodson's expose of globalist General Yam Smuts, South Africa's worst Prime Minister, and why he wasn't assassinated, part two. We'll be back with part three next week. Until then, folks, thank you for listening, and bye for now.